1: It doesn't matter if it's hard. It doesn't matter if people are against us. The only thing that matters is, are you putting in the time and the energy to get the skill that lets you do something that you want to do in the world? And once you have that, now you've got this magic set up for fulfillment, which is, of course, the real punchline.
0: Hi, I'm Rachel Hollis, and this is my podcast Hi guys, it's Rach. Welcome to another episode in our Mastermind series. And today's one that I'm pretty pumped about. Sometimes in the Mastermind series, the team comes up with ideas, the producer comes up with ideas, but today's episode, this one, is from my brain. And it's from my brain because I know that I am not the only high achiever in our community. My instinct is that you, probably, some of you, consider yourself high achievers too. We're the people who like in our DNA, we can't help it. We keep pushing, we wanna evolve. If anything, we have to teach ourselves to rest and to replenish and to take care of ourselves because our natural inclination is to climb the mountain. And then as soon as we're at the top, we see another mountain, we wanna climb that mountain too. Anyone else nodding along, you're like, yep, that's me. I gotta teach myself to rest, but I never had to teach myself how to produce. Those are the high achievers and today's mastermind is just for you. If you're not familiar with this series already, masterminds are where we choose a single topic and then we go back in our archives. We go through six years of interviews and we choose the guests that we think can best speak to what it is to have that particular characteristic or to be working through that particular season. And today I've chosen some of my favorite interviews over six years of other high achievers. These are stories from people like Tim Grover, who is one of the most successful trainers in the NBA. He trained Michael Jordan and Wayne Wade and he has incredible books on what it looks like to perform at the upper level of the upper level. You're going to hear from Jesse Itzler, who is a serial entrepreneur. He's worth, I don't even know, a gajillion dollars at this point and has a very cool and unique philosophy to how he approaches life. You're going to hear from Yvonne Orji, who is an actress and a comedian and Her story of coming up and like hustling and working her way up through New York comedy clubs to become the powerhouse she is today with Netflix specials and starring in Insecure with Issa Rae, like her story's so inspiring. You're going to hear from Tom Bilyeu, another entrepreneur who has done insane things. He built and sold Quest Nutrition and is the host of Impact Theory and is one of the most incredibly intense but will pump you up people I've ever met in my life. Lastly, one of my favorite interviews ever was with Ben Horowitz, who is a venture capitalist, serial entrepreneur, someone I had admired for a very long time and read his books, and he continues to have one of the most popular episodes ever in the history of this podcast, even though it's several years old. We're gonna share a bit of wisdom from each, and hopefully, for those of you who are pushing, who are trying to achieve, You will find some commonality today. You will find your people today. You will hear something today that helps you. And I would ask if you hear something that you dig, will you please share today's episode with someone else? You can text it to a friend. You can pop it on your social. But we are so grateful when you put the word out about the work that we're doing here on RHP. I'm just I'm thinking of the person I mean, who's listening to this right now, and it's just like, oh, but what do you do if it's just you?
2: You know what? I rather have I rather have the ball in my hands than to rely than to have it in than to have it in somebody else's. Your belief in you has to be stronger than your belief in uh, than somebody else's belief in you. That yeah. that's the, that that's the most important thing. You know, it's funny, just people go around and say, Well, they don't believe in my dreams. They're not supposed to believe in your dreams. They have their own dreams. You believe.
0: They can't even see your dreams. Yeah.
2: Believe in your dream. Matter of fact, if they, if you want them to support your dreams, guess what? You've given them a space in your head, which you shouldn't do because now they can manipulate your dreams. Uh, You control the process that's up in here. You control the thought things that's going on here. You control the battlefield of the mind that's going on in here. We let too many times, we let too many individuals get into our space that should never be in our space. They should never be in there. I always say this, all right? Your best friends should never be too friendly.
0: What does that mean?
2: All right, if your best friends are always telling you everything is gonna be okay, everything is gonna be good, don't worry about this, all right? they should not be your best friends. You need allies. We have plenty of friends. Allies tell you exactly what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. You know, I hate it when someone when you've worked so hard at something and it didn't quite go the way you wanted it or, it, you know, it failed and you know it failed and somebody comes around you and says, it's okay. I wasn't settling for okay. I'm not okay with this. My There's nothing about fine and okay that I want in my life. All right. So okay is not an okay is not an answer. You never settle for fine. But that's what most people they think they're comforting you by saying it's it's okay. It's not okay. It's 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 <laughs> at this moment, it's not okay. I can accept that I failed because I'm gonna learn from it. Because most of the time when you fail at something, I have no regrets with people that do what they're set out to do and don't get there. I have no, I have no issues. I have issues with people that don't. There's a big difference between somebody says, you know, I tried my best. Did you try your best or did you do your best? Because if you tried your best, you give yourself an out. I Mm. just tried. Did you do your best? If you did your best and you failed at something, all right, I have no, pro- I have no problems with that. If you tried your best, you already gave yourself an out. You already gave yourself
0: an out. Wow, that's so good. You talk a lot, I, I keep going back to Relentless because I think these two books are tied because it's it's almost like if people are listening and they haven't read the books yet, it's almost like Relentless is the journey and winning is the destination for that's lack a, of a better and, explanation. Yeah, and, and
2: this is, and I, I'm going and this one's gonna piss a lot of people off. I know you you don't which I don't I wish I know you don't mind and I say I say this in the book all right everyone talks about the journey the journey journey it's about the journey it's about the journey to me the most successful people when they take the journey they always have a destination otherwise they're just aimlessly running around here you know it's about the journey it's about the journey that just gives people another out to say hey it's more about the journey, and it's not about the destination. Why take the journey if you don't have a destination? Take the journey, get to that destination. Then take the next journey, get to that destination. Take the next journey, get to that destination. Every single individual I've I've known successful. Every time they take a journey, they know exactly where the destination is. Otherwise, they're just aimlessly walking around, just walking around and yeah. going in all different directions that usually they're not leading themselves in. Somebody else is leading. How many times yeah. do you know individuals that somebody else is writing the story of your life?
0: You're not, you're, you're on the boat. You're not the captain. though. So.
2: yes, you know, I, yeah. and I, one of the things I, I, I say in the book winning is like, how many people are the assistant managers of their life?
0: Mm-hmm. That's so real. And I think what what's 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 incredible if you look at your client roster is that these are people who it would be really easy to say, "Oh well, yeah, they were an athlete, and they just did this same thing over and over, and they you know pursued excellence in basketball or in baseball or whatever. But if you look at your, clients these are people who like if you use Kobe as an example would just dominated in basketball and then went on and was like I'm gonna make movies now and I'll win an Oscar and I'll like it wasn't just in sports it was how they pursued everything everything
2: all right it, it's how they did everything because the competitive nature and the winning spirit and the taste of winning, they know it doesn't have any loyalty to them. Just because they won in one thing, it doesn't mean they're going to win in something else. But the competitive nature continues to grow. Our, you know, you think about again. I like look at yourself: podcasts, TV, books. You know, just it, it's just it's one challenge, one win, the next one, then the next one, then the, And you may not the the it may take longer to get a win in one thing than in the other. But the competitive nature of who you are. Of who you are and how important it is for you to get your message out. How important it is for you to stay relevant in your field, to stay on top of it. It's a, it's something that you live every single day. It's what keeps, it's what literally keeps you up at night. That it's the song that plays in your head that only you can hear, and everybody's got this song, but very few. People are willing to listen to that song. You listen to that song every single night. I listen to that song every single night because if you listen to that song, you get to control the volume, you get to control the music, you get to control the, you become the maestro of what's going on in here.
0: I am taking my four children away this weekend to go skiing. The absolute most, whether you love barbecue or Tex-Mex or just want to be in cities that take their food very seriously. You can enjoy live music, visit internationally recognized art museums, and check out thrilling cowboy experiences. Visit TravelTexas.com slash get your own to get the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. That's TravelTexas.com slash get get your own. I'm curious. I have an instinct about this answer, but are you, how are you as a networker or how were you back then? Like you strike me as someone that's, I mean, I know you as a human, like I've seen you interact with every kind of person at 29 or 29, but like, are you good at those relationships, those connections back in the day, was that a big part of your success? Or are you successful because you laser focus and get stuff done on your own?
3: I was the best in the world at it.
0: Well tell us how. I mean what so so was no, that I'm, the way that you were came into the world or is that something you learned over time?
3: I, I was never the smartest in the room. I got a 980 on my SATs. I was never like could, the guy that read a balance sheet. I didn't know, like I didn't come I didn't grow up in that household where that was discussed. We didn't talk about money. So my default mechanism was two things. storytelling and humor. I would get oh I would be able to navigate meetings. I would beg Rachel, when I went into big meetings, I would beg that they didn't call on me because I didn't know what the hell anyone was talking about when they were talking about like the budgets and stuff. And if they did, I would deflect it with like, let me tell you guys what happened to me this weekend <laughs> into a story about nothing, make them laugh and be like, okay, go to the next question. Like get out. And I would get out of it. You know, I was like, networking was one of those things that I had to get really good at because it didn't require high intelligence, high scores or, or a degree in business. I had none of that. I love people. So it came really naturally to me. And, all kinds of people, janitor to CEO. Yeah. And I always, I I built my network when I had no money. In my 20s, intuitively, I sent 10 thank you notes a day. So I sent 3,000 letters, handwritten letters in my early 20s. That was my marketing and networking plan. And I continue to do that today. Wait,
0: you sent 10 thank to- you notes every day. every day. To who?
3: Anyone Everybody that I came across that impacted me. So if if I would send you a thank you note after yeah. this, I would send I would send anyone that I had a meeting with would get a thank you note. If I had a dinner and there were six people at the dinner, I would send everyone a note. Great to meet you. What's you know? And but it, that was what I did, and uh, I invited people to everything. If I was going to a local polar plunge that the fire department had <laughs> in New York City, Coney Island, where New Year's Eve, like you could sign up for a team of 20. I would sign up 20 people and invite them. And even if they said no, people love getting an invitation. They love that I thought about them. So I was super inclusive and, 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 I, and I still am. Yeah. So I made it a point for things that didn't cost money to, to be inclusive with people. And everything that I did in my networking, and this is still today, this is still true. I could give a I could give a master class in this. It was one way. I never asked yeah. for anything in return ever ever like everything was just like if I knew Rachel, if I knew you were into roller skating, I'd send you a, a YouTube video, Rachel. I know you're into roller skating. Check out this video on how to master roller skating in 10 minutes or less. That doesn't cost me anything, but you appreciate it because I thought about you right. So I did that. I would show up at places that didn't cost money that were hot spots. So, for example, I lived on my friend's couch. I lived on 18 couches between 19 and 22. Wow. But when I lived in LA on couch number five, my friend John Cornick's place in Burbank, we went to lunch at the Beverly Hills Hotel.
0: That was what I've heard you talk so about. Yes, the, the can story. I tell the story? Yes. Oh. No, I want, I want the audience. We here. go to
3: lunch. I'm sleeping on this guy's couch. I'm living out of my suitcase. And I'm looking around, I'm like, that's Russell Simmons. That's the guy that runs Miramax. That's the head of Warner Brothers TV. They're all at the Beverly Hills at the Polo Lounge for lunch. And I'm like, you don't have to be a, a guest at the hotel for $4,000 a night to come to lunch at the Polo Club? He's like, no, you got to order a salad. So I went, that became my office. I went there every day, literally. And I would have a salad and like a glass of water for like eight. dollars
0: Water now for like I sit there for like four <laughs> hours,
3: but I started be getting facial association with everybody. I started watching the mannerisms of the experts. How do they tip? How do they do they stand up to greet people? Like I was a 21-year-old kid, so I, I was a sponge. So I'm watching this environment of the wealthiest movers and shakers. Then I go back and I sleep on my friend's couch with five other guys in the in the house, but I'm picking up these habits, but more importantly. I'm in the bathroom with the guy. Hey, can I get you this? Can I open the door? And I'm being noticed. Years later, there's facial recognition. As my star starts to shine brighter, I'm bumping into the same guys at the restaurants. I'm bumping into the same guys at the, at the hotspots. So I put myself, part of the networking was being in the environment. Part of it was really extending, casting a wide net through things that didn't cost any money. And part of it was being really inclusive to the people already in my network.
0: So you said a couple of things that I think are freaking genius and I just want to take note of. One, the idea of the thank you notes. I love because not only are you keeping those connections strong, two, it's not something people do anymore. Even when you were doing it, it wasn't a common practice to handwrite write a note to someone so it gets noticed. And then the third thing is I think even though you're giving something to someone else, you're grounding yourself in gratitude. You're creating a world that says, all these people are here. I have abundance in my life. I've got connections. Look at all these resources I have, which is just such a beautiful state to create. And then you're also, if you've seen Hamilton, and I have to believe you have because you love hip hop, you're putting yourself in the room where it happens. So you're almost like living the life you want to have before you're able to live the life that you have, which is so genius. And by the way, I feel like we did all just get a masterclass in networking because most people who talk about networking, it feels creepy. It feels slimy. It feels like you're only looking for how people can best serve you. And I do, I know this about you because I've gotten to hang out with you. You are like, let me give you information. Let me give you ideas. Let me give you resources. You're not looking for who's going to hook you up with no. the next thing. Those are golden. Well, let, let, let me give you.
3: Let me give you two other things that I think are really important. If you were to invest three minutes a day, so there's no way everybody listening here can invest if it's important to them three minutes a day. So if you were to if you yeah. were to send a a DM, an email, or a handwritten letter, let's say it took a minute. For me to send you, hey, Rach, thanks for having me on today. Great to catch up. Love seeing you. I'm a super fan of you. To be on your show is amazing. Thank you. Boom. Takes me 20 seconds. So if I did that for three minutes a day and I sent three texts, DMs, handwritten letters, or emails, over the course of a year, if I'm consistent, that's 1,000 seeds planted. That's a 1,000 people you will hit. Now, Not everyone's going to buy your product. Not everyone's going to be a customer. But if you plant a 1,000 seeds, you only need one. One person to change the course of your life, one buyer, one referral. So if you do that one day, nothing's going to happen. If you do that for a year and you cast a 1,000 seeds, a couple of those will grow to be trees. So I'm very consistent. A part of my business today, and I'm still like I have an underdog mentality. You I five businesses, five businesses.
0: you're the world's wealthiest yeah. underdog you're no but i have so to
3: live dog. like that because that, that i got to stay hungry yeah i got to yeah. stay in that zone yeah. so i still do this and i do it in the carpool line i still you know boom i knock out three texts every day picking up my kids but over the course of time that that's how you network it's consistency you're getting me on a sidetrack there's like two million podcasts on in the Apple library. Do you know that 500,000 of them only have one episode of their podcast? A quarter, wow. 25%. If that's the competition that they do one and like, oh my God, I didn't strike gold. The advertisers aren't calling me up and they quit. If that's the state of this country and the world, I like my chances. Yeah. <laughs> All I got to do is do two podcasts and I'm in the top, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm basically in the top just because of, I want to one extra effort. So like I'm insanely consistent. I don't, I don't quit off of after one little thing. I mean, these aren't like super skills. These are just like,
0: no, no, uh, yes, I know. know. Take three minutes
3: a day and plant those seeds, man. You know, you talked about the handwritten letter and like how unusual it is. I have four kids. If my kids get a handwritten letter, it's like Christmas. They freak out. Part of being an entrepreneur or a business person is breaking through the clutter. And we all get emails. We all get bombarded with emails, texts, DMs. And a lot of times we don't read them or they get sifted through by an assistant or they go into spam. Have you ever received a letter that you haven't read? You read every letter. No, No, no way. Of
0: course. Of course. Of course.
3: And the universe. for me to send an email takes a second, blah, 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 send. To get a stamp, write write something, get a stamp, lick the envelope, walk to the mailbox, put it in the mailbox. That's a whole different energy that I'm sending towards our relationship than a one second email. And you know, like, Rachel, listen, man, I built my entire career caring the most. I'm dead freaking serious. I just, marquee jet, like I cared about the customers. I network, I, I don't network to network. I care about the people I send the DMs to. I don't waste time. I don't like say, oh, I have to, who I have to get a quote of three. There's people I care about. And when I put the effort in through a stamp and a letter and this, they feel that as a recipient and they return that to me, you know? And I've built, You could go through everybody in my phone book and they'll all randomly pick anyone. They'll say the same thing.
1: This guy
3: cares, man, about me. And anyone can do that. And they don't teach that in school. You know, they don't teach that. And whoever's listening to this, there's no reason why you shouldn't be the person that cares the most about whatever it is you do.
0: To me, being healthy, So for people who have, let's say people have even gone so far as to they've written down their values, they know what they want the culture to be, how is it, how do you make it stick because I think you've touched on it a couple times. A lot of times leaders will hear a conversation like this and they're like, okay, we're going to do it. And they, they figure out what they <laughs> want it yeah. to be and they announce it one time at the meeting and then nobody touches it uh, until next year's all hands meeting. So how do you or how have you seen leaders really implement and make something truly what it is, not just something that we say or something that we put on the wall?
4: Yeah, so I think that um, one of the keys to it is they have to bump into it all the time. Um, And there's a kind of variety of techniques that I go through in the book, but um, they're everything. So, you know, one thing is that we talked about before is what I call a shocking role. So, you know, I gave the example of, okay, you pay a $10 minute fine. Okay, that's a shock to most people when they have to pay that. And it kind of is something that they're confronted with all the time every day you know, one of the things that in, you know, from the Haitian revolution along those lines was to, to outlawed kind of, uh, officers having concubines. And so you married officers having concubines and that was just a shock to people because, you know, the, the other armies of course are raping. And so these guys can't even cheat on their wives. What the, you know, what's going on. They need to know why that is. Um, and it really, it was a rule to set a culture of trust that your word is important. Um, and so that's something that they bumped into all the time. Every time they were jealous of the kind of other soldiers having concubines, they had to go, okay, well, look, my word matters in this army. Um, and so that's something that you bump into every day. Another kind of technique that's very effective is if there's a story that's so good um, that it becomes lore in the company, then everybody knows that story. And it gets into everybody's consciousness that that's how they need to behave. And probably the, you know, the greatest example of a long-lasting culture is the, uh, the samurai culture of Bushido or the way of the warrior. And they were fantastic at this. And one of, the, one of uh, my favorite stories is uh, the story of the Chaikan uh, Marikashi, uh, which is basically a genealogy. So in ancient Japan, the biggest status symbol was your genealogy uh like basically the scroll of all your ancestors and you know you know who your grandfather and great-grandfather and so forth and your whole family tree and there was a guy by the name of lord soma who had this amazing um genealogy like recorded and it was on this scroll and everybody knew it it had a name the Chiken marikoshi and everybody was so jealous of him a samurai working for him who was a very mediocre samurai clumsy not very talented and so forth but he really liked him because he was a really kind of good person and very loyal um and so one day lord soma's house catches fire and it is burning like i mean engulfed in flames burning down there's no way to save it and the genealogy is in the house and so the samurai says um and lord was so sad about the genealogy and samurai says i'm going to go in and get it And Lord Summer says, no, you're guaranteed to die. I don't want to lose you and the scroll. Like, it's gone. It's over. Don't worry about it. Before he can finish talking, the samurai's in the house. So after the house burns down, they go out to to look for him. And sure enough, like, he's burnt to a crisp, face down. Um, But they notice there's a pool of blood around his body. They can't figure out why he's bleeding. And so they turn him over, and there's a slit in his stomach. And they reach into the slit, and inside his stomach is the genealogy. Um, He cut himself open and saved the scroll, you know, for everybody, and that, that went on to be known as the blood genealogy, and it's a story of, look, you can redeem yourself entirely by being loyal. That's how important loyalty is, and you could be mediocre your whole career, but be a legend you know, if you have loyalty to that degree. So that, that kind of story sets a culture in a way that all the talk could never do um, because who could forget a story like that or, or a name like
0: that, the blood <laughs> genealogy. Yeah. I'm, I'm smirking as you're telling this story because I'm like, who else uses these analogies to explain modern day business principles? <laughs> this is my favorite. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm curious as you're speaking, it's the first time that it's like really clicking in for me, how often you're speaking through essentially like war, soldiers, because even in prison, I'm thinking it's a similar like why is that culture so similar to what it is to create a business?
4: Well, I think, you know, a lot of the examples are kind of extreme situations and you get a lot of clarity from that because, you know, it's hard to go, well, you know, if you do this then you know, people will be political. And people go, okay, yeah, I'll have some politics, whatever. But like, okay, if you don't do this, then everybody's going to die. And people <laughs> get like the sharpness about it. Yeah. Uh, and and I think that's, you know, works effectively in that way. And that was certainly the case in the Haitian revolution and in the kind of samurai culture. Hey, we actually, one of my favorite stories in samurai culture is like a key on culture is you have to balance things because they can get out of hand if they're interpreted all one way. So, for example, um, at Slack, my friend Stuart Butterfield uh, had this cultural value, which was empathy. Um, And, you know, what he meant is you need to understand somebody else's point of view before you kind of push your own. You need to, like, be empathetic to why they think a certain way about something, which is an important thing in a company, right, because somebody in marketing has a different view than somebody in engineering, and you need to understand what that perspective is before you start pushing your agenda, and that was what he meant. (laughs) Um, But what they did was it became sort of weaponized in the sense that, you know, if somebody got a bad review from their manager, they would say, oh, to their manager, you're off culture because you're not being very empathetic. And so that's like such a corruption of the idea. But that happens all the time in culture. And so if you go to the samurai, one of the things that they did was, and one of my favorite stories is they had this honor culture, which is basically, and and it was kind of for protection, because if somebody insults you, you know, that's a little bit of a diagnostic on whether they can like steal from you, kill you, do all these things. So, like, you never let anybody insult you under any circumstances. Like, they insult you, they're gonna die. That's kind of the culture. So, there's a story of the samurai who has a flea on his shoulder, and another person says, Excuse me, you have a flea on your shoulder. And the samurai cuts his head off, <laughs> and he's like, Well, why'd you cut his head off? And he's like, Well, you know, I'm not an animal, I don't have fleas. <laughs> yeah, you know, that was an insult. And so that's the, you know, that's how far it went. So they kind of had to pair that virtue, as we call it. And we call them virtues as opposed to values, because what you do, not what you believe. Um, and the, the kind of counter to that was politeness. And politeness in Japanese culture is a really amazing thing, um, because it's much more than it was what, what it is in our culture. And if you've ever been to Tokyo, you kind of experience it. It's quite a thing. Um, And what it means in Japanese culture, in the samurai culture, is it's the greatest way to show love and respect for the person that you're dealing with. And so it's the complete set of rules for not getting your head cut off, in in a sense. Because if you respect me, you will treat me like this. You'll bow like this. You'll serve me tea in this way, and so forth. And so there's a very, very elaborate scheme. But then you still have to keep that in check because if what if people are just lying to kind of get your good graces, and they're being polite but they don't really mean it, and so they have this thing that politeness without veracity is empty. There, it's nothing, and so they really kind of construct uh, a culture that's got many dimensions to it, so that they get it right, and uh, you know, and and this is something that you really have to ask. You know, so coming up with okay, here are the ideas of what we want to be, but then, like, how are they going to play out when implemented is is kind of a big part of of what you're trying to do.
0: So you're in New York, you've got this basement apartment, you're taking an acting class, then what happens? So, okay, let me back up.
5: When I lived in Maryland, I would do, like, church events, because, you know, like, church events paid. And so I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm getting paid to do comedy? And, like... (laughs) $500 $500 here, a thousand here. And I'm like, to tell jokes? What? And for like five minutes and it's like the same set. I said, what doctor gets paid five uh, $500 in five minutes? What doctor? What you? And I just was just like, oh my God, I can actually make it. I didn't know like comedians were poor. <laughs> because I, mean, I moved to New York thinking like I would have the same kind of setup, baby. They have these bringer shows and it was like if you bring five friends each paying like the full amount then uh, we'll give you you know 4 minutes and it's just like i'm it's how to win friends and not how to lose friends and not influence nobody that's what that that book is called <laughs> and, and and so after a while i was like well this is not going to work cuz one i only brought me to new york so i don't have that many friends and the few that like i do They're, they're poor. They're artists like me. They don't have the money to support me every night and I need to practice. And so it was the, it was the moment where I just was like, oh my God, like, how am I going to get better? How am I even going to get seen if I can get on stage? So one day I go to a, a, um, an open mic night An open mic is just like comics who are just trying out new material. It's not a show. Sometimes there's like regular audience members. Most of the time it's just other comics in the audience who are not listening to you because they're working on their set. And this particular night, this guy said, um, Hey, I got to give up the room because I'm like moving to LA. And so, who wants to take the room over? And I looked around, waiting for like all these other, like, more established comedians to be like, Me. And nobody did. And I just was like, mm, I'll do it. Because in my mind, again, I'm a Nigerian businesswoman. In my mind, I was like, I don't have to ask anybody for permission to get on stage at least once a week. And then I can meet other comics by booking them on the show. And then I get to be in control. Yeah, I'll do it. And I think what other comics saw as work, I saw as opportunity. Because how else was I going to like meet other comics and then be like, and network and say, hey, where are you guys getting up after this? Great, after I wrap up the show, I'll come meet you. So it was like, it was, it was my way of, fixing a problem. And a lot of times people think that when God fixes the problem, it's like, oh, God opened up a door for me to always perform at this place. No, God opened up a door for me to work and be responsible and have ownership and then also meet the problem. So yes, no, it was not fun dragging equipment on the train every Thursday night, creating flyers and listserv, reaching out to comics, booking the show. But It gave me a sense of ownership. And I called that show, Mama, I Made It, because I was like, one day, I'm going to call my mom and actually say those words to her. Cut to, years later, I have an HBO special with the same name.
0: Yes. Oh, my gosh. How long did you do that? How long did you run that, that room? I ran that room for about two years wow yeah and was that sorry this is a dumb question was that lucrative at all or it just sort of no (laughs) i actually lost money because i would
5: pay audience members if they told a joke i remembered and that's the thing it's like i was like i had no idea how to run a room i just remembered that when i lived in dc there was a guy who ran an open mic and that's why like nothing is ever wasted and so he really enjoyed me and so i emailed him i was like hey friend um doing this thing how did you do it all these years? He was like, this is the kind of equipment to get. This is the kind of mic. This is the kind of lights. This is how I set it up. Um, and I remembered he used to pay uh, audience members because, you know, comedy is not easy. And everyone, sometimes people are like, I could do that. And he's like, great. Whoever tells the best joke, I'll give them $5. And so I did the same thing with my mom I made it. I was like, you know, and that would like entice audience members like I can get $10 or, you know, whatever tonight. And so that's, I, I did not make any money. But it wasn't, but it wasn't, and sometimes you have to do the things not to make money. But what I did make were friends. What I did create was a community. And what I did get to do was have the opportunity to consistently practice my set. I should also say I was working as a temp during the day. So that's where I actually got the money from. So I was like, I get the money from working as a temp and I funneled it back into like, once I paid rent, funneled it back into my mind made it.
0: Right. And I think it's worth saying that too, because I think a lot of people, especially a younger generation sort of misses that step. They want to be in the thing where they're working on the dream or they're creating the content or they're putting it out in the world, but they want it to already be lucrative. They want it to already be a paying job. And the reality for all of us that I know, at least in the age group that I'm in, is that we all had that. We all had day jobs and then pursued the dream that we wanted or the business that we wanted to have or the person we wanted to be at night, in the morning, on weekends. And it wasn't easy. It was a hustle and it was hard. When did you feel like you started to get traction so that you started to like, okay, now this can actually be my gig.
5: So just circling back to what you just said, I don't know if, if if we've aged out of this formula because you're absolutely right. I'm just like, maybe it's like, the Instagram, YouTube culture, where you can, like, make money if your video pops off, that really makes, I guess, people of this generation, I don't even know where we are, Z, Y, then, I don't know, <laughs> um, you know, of this generation who, who like, who truly feel like, mm, yeah, no, I, I, like, I it's funny, because I have people who, like, maybe come in to, like, want to work with me or whatever. And they're just kind of like, oh, this is, this is the long run. Mm-mm. I'm just, I want to be you now. And it's like, uh, yeah, uh, mm. it, it <laughs> took a decade. <laughs> like, it just, it took a decade. Like, how are you going to be me now? Like, it took so much effort and work. And, and, and maybe there is like a go-go gadget, <laughs> you know, button that people can press and then suddenly pop. I didn't know, I don't know that it exists. And if it does, please send it my way. Can I Amazon Prime it? Right. It, it's just like, it's like the new norm. And to almost find a young person or a, uh, even a grown person who is like committed and dedicated to like the process of like, yo, I know like sometimes you have to serve and you have to work hard and like, and then you like your time comes. Even for me now, like I am number two on a show. And yes, I get benefit from that. But my goal, the whole five seasons of shooting was like, I'm here to serve Issa Rae and her vision.
0: Mm -hmm. I'm innocent because one day someone will serve me and mine. Let's talk about growth mindset because for people who are watching this at home or maybe sitting in the room who aren't familiar with this idea, will you explain the role that it played in your life and sort of what it means for all of us as individuals?
1: Yeah, no doubt. So I call it the only belief that matters because your behaviors follow your beliefs and your behaviors are all that matter. Therefore, your beliefs actually are all that matter. And once you realize that your beliefs are actually a choice that we confuse with objective reality. So we look at ourselves and go, no, but I really am dumb. Like, I, what, what do you want me to say? You know what I mean? Like, you need look no further than Elon Musk or Einstein or, you know, whoever. Pick the person that's better than you at the thing that you want to be good at. And it strikes us as self-evident that we are worthless. And so people end up in this spiral of, well, I'm not good at this. I'll never be good at this. I have failed. Therefore, I am a failure. Um, And they don't move forward to get better at something. And so I got obsessed with that idea of my whole life changed when I realized, oh, if I put time and energy into gaining a skill, I actually will gain that skill. And so something that I talk about a lot, and I never see that like moment of awakening in people's eyes. And so I just keep saying it in as many different ways as I can think of until I see people really make that shift of skills have utility. They let you do things. So you don't get a skill so you can check a box so you can get a degree so that you can impress your parents. You get a skill so you can build a fucking bridge, so that you can uh, build a rocket ship, so you can build a company, so you can be a better parent, so you can, you know, heal a human being, like whatever your thing is, but like a doctor goes to school specifically to learn how to like imagine opening a human up, cutting something out, sewing it back together, and then they're better. It's like, you don't happen upon that. You go through a lot of work to get these skills. And so once people understand, oh, wait a second, the human animal, is by design the ultimate adaptation machine, okay? Every species goes down one of two paths. Path A is a horse, right? And you come out and you can do all horsey things 20 minutes in. Now imagine that at 20 minutes in, your infant sounded like a 30-year-old. Right. That'd be really weird. <laughs> See, and as a species, we, we have a whole different setup, which is that we are wired, to learn from our surroundings. So we have this extended period of infancy where for years, we can't take care of ourselves, right? Like even, you know, when a real toddler, even in the most fundamental ways, they can't hold their own head up. They, you know, have to wear diapers. Like it's, it's really a serious thing. And when you think about how long we have to engage with our kids. And so, okay, that's how the, the species is created. So, whether you believe in God or not, and let's put some God language on it for a minute. God has made you such that that's what you require to get up and going, to get fully baked, is you have this system where you can adapt to anything better than any other animal. So that's like your gift is the ability to go shifting from one thing to another. Now, if that is at a species level, our gift, then it's like, well, what are you doing to make use of that? And most people, when they read a book, it is to say that they read the book. It isn't to extract that knowledge and say, and now I can do this thing. And then to go do that thing in the world. And once you realize, okay, I'm designed to get better at something. If I put the time and energy into getting better, I actually will get better. And I will get better at something that matters to the world. Now you're never trapped, right? So one of my favorite quotes of all time is Kobe Bryant, booze. Don't block dunks.
0: Yes, you have told me this many times.
1: Oh man, I'm obsessed with this idea. So you can get so good at something that no matter how much people hate you, no matter how much they want to stop you, no matter how much the deck is stacked against you, no matter how much the world wants to hold you down, you can get so good at something that you literally can't be stopped. So take Kobe Bryant. So the best basketball players that the globe has to offer We're talking out of 7.8 billion people, they are narrowed down to the best of the best of the best. And then we pay them millions of dollars to stop Kobe Bryant from scoring. And yet, Rachel, in a single game, that man scored 81 points. So that's for all of us to claim in our lives that... It doesn't matter if it's hard. It doesn't matter if people are against us. The only thing that matters is, are you putting in the time and the energy to get the skill that lets you do something that you want to do in the world? And once you have that, now you've got this magic set up for fulfillment, which is of course the real punchline.
0: What does fulfillment look like for you? Because we're sitting I, I've in this got a room, definition. I know we're sitting in this room, and I think that you and Lisa would be the definition for so many people of what the ultimate success looks like. And frankly, you could have the golden parachute of having sold Quest. You've made it to the top of the mountain. You made it to the top of the highest mountain. You leapt right off, and you could just, you know, hang out for the rest of your life. You're young. You're wealthy, you have access, you've done the thing, you've already impressed people. And right away, you started building the next thing. And it's audacious. And some, <laughs> I mean, if you go hang out with Tom, I just like, I sit, I'm i two hours go by and I'm like, I don't even know what this man just said. I don't even know the words that you just used to describe this thing you're building because it's so big. I have to learn a new language to even be able to understand what you're dreaming of next. Where does that come from? What does fulfillment look like?
1: Okay, so I'll define fulfillment and I want everybody to understand that the punchline of life, so there there is a reason that we pursue fame, money, accolades. So I'm not taking anything away from that, but we pursue them with a misunderstanding of what they do. So money, for instance, is the great facilitator. I wouldn't be able to build what I'm building now if I didn't have access to capital. So that really is, it's actually money is more powerful than people think but it's not what they've been told. So what you think is that money is going to change how you feel about yourself, that you will feel about yourself the way you feel about other wealthy people when you look at them. But the reality is it won't work. And how do I know? From experience. So I'm very grateful that I chased money really hard in the beginning before I had it and realized, oh, I'm technically on paper, I'm a multimillionaire, but like emotionally, I feel terrible. And so I don't like my life and I don't want to keep living this way. And so I learned that really early on. And so then the sort of great irony of my life is that I made money once I stopped focusing on money and I started focusing on value creation because of course, that's what people actually pay for. So that that was really big is to understand the game I'm playing is neurochemistry. The game I'm playing that we're all playing is how do you feel about yourself when you're by yourself? Now, if you can embrace that that is all that matters. Because like, I'll I'll ask the question this way, how many billionaires have to commit suicide before people realize, oh, money can't touch that, that thing, whatever that thing is, but that even having that much money can't keep you from wanting to end your life. Okay. So now hopefully we can put money on a different shelf and say, okay, that like, whatever it is that makes me feel alive, that makes me want to live. That's the thing I want to protect. Okay. So we just answered the question. It isn't going to be money because here's the weird thing about money is, and so the way that you get wealthy when you build a business is it, it comes all at once. So for years and years and years on paper, I'm worth hundreds of millions of dollars, but in reality, I'm driving a Ford Focus with a leaky exhaust and my own employees have to give me ride homes. That is a real story. And then one day you're hitting refresh on your banking app and boom, you're now fantastically wealthy. And so literally in that moment, you realize, whoa, all of my insecurities are still here. And so I better do the work on my emotional state, my mental state, how I feel about myself when I'm by myself. Independent of my outward success. Okay, so I learned that lesson early. So now we exit Quest and I'm because we we did it in two tranches. So we took an investment, so now I'm wealthy. We took another invest or we sold the company at the end, and so now I'm really wealthy. So it's like, okay, I've I've gone through that cycle, which is why I knew the only thing that matters is meaning and purpose, because that's what's gonna make me feel good about myself when I'm by myself, is that I have a goal. And that goal is exciting to me and it's honorable. So I'm trying to elevate humanity. I'm trying to lift people up around me, right? It could be, you don't have to be trying to uplift the whole world, but you're trying to make it better for somebody near you, the people that you love and care. It's not just about you. And we're hardwired for this. It just is. It is what I call the physics of being human. There is no way to escape that trap. We must all as a social creature, feel like we are meaningfully contributing to the group. Otherwise, we feel a sense of emptiness, of being lost. We may not even be able to put our finger on why, but I'm just telling you, the why is because you're a social animal that isn't contributing to the group. Okay, so fulfillment is this. This is just lining up with what your brain is wired to give you pleasure for or punish you for not doing. Working really hard to gain a set of skills that allow you to accomplish that goal that's both honorable and exciting, you have to have all of that. You have to work hard. This is why rich kids often end up in trouble because they didn't earn any of this. And there's a sub program in the unconscious mind that's gonna reward you if you work hard for something. That's why getting out and being active and doing hard labor, at the end of the day, we're tired, but we feel good. That's a subconscious program running in your mind, just saying, hey, you were a hunter gatherer once and I needed dear nature or God in, you know, input your language. I needed to give you a pleasurable reward for going out and doing that scary, dangerous, hard thing. So we get naturally rewarded for that and we feel its absence. So you work really hard to gain a set of skills that allow you to serve yourself and other people. That's fulfillment. That That is an emotional state that can weather a storm. So it can weather... A breakup. It can weather uh, losing your money. It can weather a death in the family. Okay. It isn't happiness. It's something far more concrete that says, to me, the way that I think about it, it it's nature's way of ensuring that you're translating potential into actual skill set. Mm. And the reward for translating potential into used skill set is fulfillment.
0: The Rachel Hollis Podcast is produced by me, Rachel Hollis. It's edited by Andrew Weller and Jack Noble. Doors take us to summers away
3: or winter adventures and afternoon getaways your dedicated Fidelity advisor can help you open those doors by working with you on a comprehensive plan to help you reach your wealth's full potential because doors were meant to be opened. Visit fidelity.com slash wealth, investment minimum supply, Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC.
5: It's your time. Join global thought leader, executive producer, and New York Times bestselling author T.D. Jakes and today's leading culture shifters for an experience unlike any other.